you are listening to A Pastor in His Newspaper with Dr. Castro, a podcast helping you read the news with the Bible in your hand. I am Dr. Castro. It's great to be with you. It's been a long time. I've My wife had our fourth child, so that's why I've been out and not on the podcasting. Uh, So, but I am back and a lot has happened since I've been gone. We had the end of the great Queen Elizabeth II's reign. She uh, passed away at 96 on September the 8th. And I am a a huge fan of Queen Elizabeth and hero of mine. So next week, I'm going to talk about her and uh, talk about just her her legacy and um and so but today um i want to talk about just the violence in memphis uh a lot's happened this month and uh, i want to just talk about not only memphis but kind of as a a microcosm of a kind of issue going on in american cities um over the last uh, really since the pandemic in 2020 uh, violence has spiked all over the country. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, some other news to catch you up on. Uh, the Tennessee Vols beat the University of Florida. Uh, so I am super happy this week. And I, um, since, since I grew up in a time when, you know, obviously Alabama has been a rival for Tennessee historically, but uh, from my lifetime, the Tennessee-Florida rivalry has been the most heated and because uh, in the 90s, Alabama struggled, mostly the mid-90s onward. And so Tennessee had a kind of an eight-game winning streak against Alabama. And But man, we really struggled to beat Florida. This is the Steve Spurrier years when they you know, Danny Warfel and all these wide receivers and they won, I think they won several SEC championships and, um, in the nineties and they really were the Alabama of the SEC in the nineties. And Tennessee was really, uh, I mean, was kind of like Georgia for a long time. Like they finally got over the hump in 98, but, uh, had some dominant teams on offense, especially with Peyton Manning and Jamal Lewis and, um, Dante Starworth and Peerless Price and all of these just great players that played in the NFL, great defensive players like uh, um, Al Wilson and Leonard Little and the list kind of goes on and on uh, defensive backs and just a lot of talent. They ended up playing in the NFL that, but they just could not beat Florida and uh, eventually they did beat them in 98 and they had some years where they, you know, they won, uh, I believe they beat Florida in 01. They beat them in 2003. They beat them in 2004. Uh, so we had some kind of some momentum and then, um, you know, Fulmer uh, eventually gets fired and um, Urban Meyer comes to Florida and Urban Meyer had this remarkable um uh, streak going on not only against Tennessee, but just they won SC championships. They had um, Tim Tebow, two national championships during his tenure in Tennessee. Just, I mean, obviously, just wasn't as talented as Florida. And so, uh, never beat Florida when Urban Meyer was there. Uh, never even beat him when Will Muschamp was there. Um, but then eventually was able to beat Florida in 2016. Um, but I, I, th- that was the. Um, um, there was a, a very talented Tennessee team with Alvin Kamara 
Um, and, but I hated that team of all the Tennessee teams that I can remember. It's one of my least favorite teams, mostly because they underperformed. Uh, they were a team that should have gone to the sugar bowl and should have probably have gone to the SC championship and lost to Vanderbilt and South Carolina. And, uh, so one of my least favorite teams of all time. And, uh, and so I kind of forgot that they beat Florida that year. And, uh, so anyway, so I, I've, I've, I have a, a, a real, real frustration with that particular game. And it was an enjoyable game. It got close to the end, but Tennessee was the better team. They played well. Um, Florida played really well as well. And I think that's what made it so sweet is that Florida played extremely well. And their quarterback, Anthony Richardson played outstanding, but uh, Tennessee played better. And Hendon Herker was uh, unbelievable to watch. And so it was a lot of fun. And I felt like it was uh, something that Tennessee fans have been waiting for a long time. And so uh, that was a joy this week to just to get to, to watch that and wish I was at the game. But uh, it seems like people who were there, thanks for bringing a home, a win home and the checkerboard looks fantastic in the stadium like it always does. And so I look forward to going to the Tennessee, Missouri game later in the season um, and uh, being a part of just watching this fun Tennessee team play. So, uh, that's happened. And for my, my, my Memphis friends, uh, Memphis fan friends, uh, congratulations on not getting hammered by the NCAA. Uh, congratulations on that. And so, um, so y'all get to, uh, I don't think there's a postseason ban at all. I think you, uh, get to go to the NCAA tournament. And so kudos to you. And so as we kind of transition from, you know, some, you know, positive for some people, uh, obviously Queen Elizabeth, the second's death is, is, is an unfortunate thing and, um, sad in a lot of ways and, um, kind of an end of a, uh, an era that stretched a long period of time. I think, you know, Queen Elizabeth connects my generation to my grandparents' generation and with her death, there is, does seem like a, a kind of a hole there. So uh, I think with Billy Graham's death, there were similarities. I think across denominations amongst uh, Christians with his death, there seems like a bit, a bit, a, a disunity since his death. But I, I wonder what will happen with Queen Elizabeth's death. What will be the consequences or the byproducts of her death? I want to talk a little bit about that next week. But um, today we're talking about violence in America, violence, uh, looking at violence in Memphis, um, particularly. And, uh, you know, two weeks ago was a really difficult week for the city. You know, I, I moved back to Memphis and, um, you know, when you live in Memphis, you know, that the crime is, is bad. The violence is bad, but you know, in a lot of ways, Memphis is, violence is not much different than cities like Chicago or cities like St. Louis or cities like new Orleans, Tennessee and Memphis is kind of in that, that mix. Um, and it definitely has more violence than say New York or Atlanta, but, um, Memphis has had a, um, you know, when it comes to race related issues in Memphis, Memphis is very divided. You know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was, was shot and killed by a white man in the city of Memphis. Um, and so Memphis has had its, its struggles and its issues and it has its, um, it's in some way the flight of the wealthy and the, and the white to, to communities outside the city. Um, and people who, 
hardly ever go into the city because of some of the crime and violence. So there's a, there is a separation of the haves and the have nots in the city of Memphis and hence some of the, the violence and the crime struggles that the city has. Uh, and it all kind of started early uh, in, in the, in the month of September, uh, Eliza Fletcher, uh, a school teacher who lived in East Memphis, um, was, training for a a marathon or half marathon, one of the two. And so she was known to run in the area uh, early in the morning, uh, but she was abducted during her morning run early, like at four or four, four in the morning on September the 2nd. Um, And uh, she was abducted and murdered. And um, so that, that, that event in and of itself just kind of rippled across the city, across the state. Uh, the governor of Tennessee, uh, Billy, came um, to the city um, because of just the increase in violence. Um, she was a, a teacher. She was a mother. Um, and it just, there was just outrage, not only amongst just the city, but just women, uh, women who run as well, because... I mean, the, the one thing going out, running, jogging, it's something that I've, you know, I've done a lot. And just that kind of that, that time uh, where you are kind of exercising something you enjoy, something you love. Um, sometimes you do this with friends. Maybe you have a group of, of runners that you run with. And for a woman to run in her neighborhood, in her community that she's lived in and who's done, she's done this you know, quite often. She is abducted and killed. Um, by a, a man uh, who had no connection to her whatsoever, uh, and um, and just the the senseless, the confusion, the just no reason for it, just creates so much uh, pain um, across the whole city. And that happened, but then it didn't really stop that week. On Wednesday of that week, the city was literally paralyzed uh on wednesday night a gunman uh set off a, a kind of a man set off a a huge manhunt uh, across the city with a string of shootings that uh, killed four people uh wounding three others uh actually people who were at the redbirds games were forced to stay at the at the ballpark and couldn't leave because of this mad gunman just roaming the city uh going into places and shooting places up like an auto zone uh, i know in, in particular and uh, well, he was eventually caught in uh, Whitehaven. But this happened. I mean, I was at church that night and the whole church, the, the kind of the, the, the news kind of spread across church. There was rumors that he was heading eastward to Germantown and our church is on, on Winchester. And so we're like, well, okay, what, what do we need to do? We need to get people out of the building. And there was even radio reports um, that night saying people needed to get home. Like people, if you're out, you need to get home because we just don't know where this, this gunman is. That's kind of created this entire one person who acted violently, shut down a whole city. Um, uh, Jim Strickland, who's the mayor of Memphis said a new conference that week. He said, I'm angry that our citizens had to shelter in place for their own safety until the suspect was caught. This is no way for us to live and is not acceptable. Uh, so yeah, fear just kind of settled into a fury, um, anger, concern over violence in Memphis. It was kind of national news uh, that week on CNN. There was an article in New York, New York Times about Memphis and its violence. Um, and, you know, let me just give you some statistics. Uh, Memphis has struggled with 
um, this crime and violence for a long time. Um, in 2021, the city had a record number of killings with 346. In 2022, the violent crime rate compared with last year has only marginally improved, according to police statistics. Uh, as I said before, Memphis, we, we have neighborhoods that are very, um, that struggle with chronic poverty and crime and um, areas of our city that um, are um, places that you just don't want to be, right? It has that stigma of places. You don't want to be there at certain times of the day. You don't want to be caught in those areas. Um, and so, but, you know, as Memphis struggles to protect citizens from violence, it has had its recent problems. It's not the highest in the city, in the country. Um, let me just give you 20 cities in the United States with, I'm going to get, I'm not going to read all 20, but uh, cities with the highest murder rates, uh, murders per 100,000 people. So St. Louis, Missouri has the highest, highest murder rate, 69.4 murders per 100,000 people. Baltimore, Maryland is second with 51.1 murders per 100,000 people. New Orleans is third with 40.6 murders per 100,000 people. Detroit, Michigan is 39. 9.7 murders per 100,000 people. Cleveland, Ohio is 33.7. Las Vegas, Nevada, 31.4. Kansas City, Missouri, 31.2. And then you get to Memphis, Tennessee, which is 27.1, just above Newark, New Jersey, and then the city of Chicago. So Memphis is not the worst. And you could see that this is a, an issue that is affecting many cities across the United States. Um, let me really let me kind of give you some statistics across the United States. Um, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, as uh, a U.S. government agency, uh, they reported that there were 24,500 homicides in America in 2020. There was a 28% rise uh, from 2019, which was the biggest one-year jump in over a century. So you, there's a there's a trend that has started uh, since the pandemic. Um, and this has really been a major political issue as well. Kind of the tough on crime, uh, defund the police has been a big political um, statement that uh, Republicans are using against Democrats. Um, and so there's there, you know, so this kind of have been now a, a major political issue of, of just crime and violence and police uh, views on the police and defunding police and these type of things, um, that are happening that have really kind of captured cities. Murder rates have, have spiked almost everywhere in big cities, sur suburban areas and rural areas. There are more victims of both sexes, almost every race and ethnicity and every age group. Uh, but the biggest growing number, both proportionally and in absolute terms was of young black men living in black cities of all homicides, 19,350 involved a gun and black people of whom 12,000 were killed in that year, kind of for 70% of the increase in gun homicides. The murder rate in America is over six times the level seen in Britain, France, and Germany. Uh, also not only murders, but other violent crimes such as carjackings have soared even as less violent crimes such as burglary have declined. So it seems like in America, carjackings, murders, uh, violent crimes, assaults are all spiking. They're all going up. 
Um, now this is in, as we're going to talk about, uh, this is in this kind of a, this trend and pattern is, is along the same, is in the same context as, as some of the race issues with relations to the police, to George Floyd in Minneapolis, what happened in the summer of 2020 has in some ways affected, um, and cause an increase in violent crime. Then there's some other factors that I kind of want to get into as well. Um, but this is really interesting. I want to, I want to share this because it shows this, the impact that even one murder can have. You think, okay, one person died, tragic, sad, uh, the, you know, life goes on. Yeah. But there's, there's, if you want to put some economic numbers, it shows you the tragedy of even one murder to a neighborhood. Uh, let me read this. Such violence does not just cut short individual lives and cause mis- misery to their families. It also makes local residents far more nervous. It's made Memphis nervous. I live out here in Cairoville. I live about 35 plus minutes away from the city. It's made me nervous. Older people fear leaving their homes. Children are not allowed out to play. Those who have the means abandon once cherished homes for safer place. They, they move from their old lungs, maybe to safer neighborhoods. Maybe they move further away from the city. As middle-class residents leave, cities can find themselves in a spiral of decline and disinvestment. Businesses start pulling out. People start selling their homes, which means less tax, less tax revenue to fund public services. You take all this into account, calculations made in 2004 put the cost of one murder, one a single murder to society at 9.7 million, that's a million with an M, dollars. That is equivalent to 15.7 million today. And it would put the total cost of homicide in America at nearly $400 billion a year, just under 2% of GDP. And most of this is concentrated in the poorest parts of the country. So when longtime residents move out of communities because they feel it's unsafe, that's less tax, property tax. Businesses close their businesses, that's less jobs, less customers that are getting out to buy products from those stores. And so they close the stores, less jobs for people. Less jobs means less money to buy food and shelter and clothing and other needs. When the city doesn't have tax money, they're not able to have services for people. They're not able to run, um, you know, public transportations at, at certain hours so that people can get to work or get to other, to get to school and to other places. I mean, this creates a spiral that affects a community in a very, very negative way. Violence in America cities tend to be concentrated among a few neighborhoods. This is again, this is important to remember and it it tends to happen in uh, very few neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods of our communities, few groups of people in Chicago, over a third of shootings happen in just 5% of the city by area, only a third. So 33% of the shootings that happen in the whole city of Chicago happen in just a five and just a 5% area of the city. In New York, the police believe that just 800 people account for at least a fifth of all violent crime. So violence is happening. It's concentrated in these certain neighborhoods In these certain neighborhoods who need better education. They need invest business investment. They need jobs. 
They, they need social services. When there's more violence in these areas, there's a decline in all of these things that they need, which creates more violence, creates the spiral that's never ending. Most violence happens in the summer and on weekends, usually done by young men with few economic options. They don't have jobs. They don't have places to go. And one of the issues that I really want to talk about, and especially in the neighborhoods are, you know, for young men who have few economic options, there is a um, clear signals and of who has and who does not. There's an equality that is very recognized. Um, there's a competition for signals or, or labels of success. And so those things tend to be materialistic shoes, clothing, cars, women, access to other things. And when you have these things, they help build your street credibility, right? You're seen as, as tough. You're seen as, as a, uh, a man of worth, someone who is to be respected, to be feared. That's the value system of these neighborhoods. And so violence, you know, to be run over, to be spit upon, to be slapped in the side of the faith, to allow that to happen and not retaliate is seen as weakness. You're not a real man. That's one problem. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But one of the other issues going on in the community is there's a fracturing of the police in the community that has caused violence. Despite I mentioned earlier, the wake in the wake of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the summer of 2020 has created a mistrust between the citizens of neighborhoods and the police department. Today, many violent crimes go unpunished. Therefore, many neighborhoods in American cities are lawless areas where vendettas and honor systems are the judicial system or the judicial law. You get even if you're harassed for your own protection and street credibility. You get even. You fix the problem yourself. You don't rely on the police. You take matters into your own hands. Why has violent crime soared, particularly in the past few years? One of the plausible explanation is that the pandemic may have pushed more young men onto the streets as social services closed down and made their lives more successful, stressful, leading to more arguments. This has happened across America with road rage and bad driving has also risen. It's most visible in the poorest communities because the baseline level of violence was already high. And so now when you create more people on the streets, more people stressful, agitated, more easily led to violence when they get into an argument or if they are um, dishonored or in some way, it leads to to more violence. Um, and this has created one of the, uh, one of the variables, uh, one explanation for the increase in violence, not only in the city of Memphis, but also across the country. There already is a, a there's plenty of guns in circulation that has also rised dramatically. And I don't really want to get into an argument or a discussion on, on pro-gun or anti-gun. Uh, maybe that's uh, a conversation or an episode for the, for the future. But we can say with some factuality that there is a lot of guns circulating in some of these poor neighborhoods that are dealing with um, increases of, of violence. 
And, and it seems like police are, are not very effective of providing security due to the protests in 2020, the Black Lives Matter and others. And again, I don't really want to get back into the weeds of that, but it has created and the defund the police protest and certain mayors of certain American cities actually threatening to defund the police um, because of George Floyd and other um, um, killings um, by cops of, of black men and black women. Uh, like in Louisville with Brianna Taylor, this has led many, many more people to, because the police have in some ways dialed back in response has led more people to buy guns and carry guns, which creating a more, uh, more conditions for extreme violence and murders. So you just have as an area concentration of violence already an increase in circulation of, of weapons because police have dialed back from being involved in these communities because of protests that have happened since 2020. And you've created a, a perfect storm for increased violence. And to kind of go a little bit deeper due to the reaction of the George Floyd death and others, there has, there's a, there's a continual or not, maybe even increased deep distrust of the police. And one of the ways that police solve murder crimes is through the help of the community witnesses who tell them what they saw and what they heard this helps them solve crimes and when they when act when cops are and detectives are able to solve crimes it leads to less violence but there's a mistrust in the communities many witnesses do not come forward and so the highest murder rates in America tend to be in cities with the most ingrained history of segregation, like Baltimore and New Orleans and St. Louis and Memphis. In such places, murders are often public acts intended to demonstrate toughness, but police officers, most of whom are outsiders to these communities, find them hard to penetrate. There's a protection by the community of even the one doing the violence, either out of fear and police are a- unable to, to penetrate these communities and get the information they need to be able to arrest and, and, uh, and put uh, those violent um, perpetrators behind bars. Every well-intentioned pro- uh, police officer are looked on with a lot of suspicion, says one former prosecutor from Cook County, which covers Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. Most cases, she says, must be built from witnesses, yet there is huge hostility to police. Victims have been known to refuse the reveal. Uh, victims have been known to refuse to reveal who shot them despite being close to death, even among people who do not hate the police. There's always a feeling of why should I stick my neck out there? A deep distrust in the police causes cases not to be solved. This leads to more violence. People lose faith in the justice system. Everybody loses. And it also increases retaliatory killings. I don't trust the police to solve the problem. I will solve the problem myself. I will take matters into my own hands. Frederick Eccles, the CEO of a um, uh, violence spreading uh, um, kind of violent prevention spreading organization says um, the model is built around the idea that violence spreads in a community like a communicable, 
disease, kind of like um, uh, COVID. For a disease to spread, there has to be an environment that supports the growth of bacteria virus. Just as, as Corona spreads in overcrowded slums without clean water or other diseases uh, spread in overcrowded slums without clean water and violence spreads in most places where jobs are few, access to good education limited and inequality rampant. Which is kind of what we're seeing in statistics. A lot of the violence is concentrated in places where there's where a lot of young men are not working. There's a lack of access to good education. And there's rampant poverty. Cure Violence, this is the organization that Frederick Eccles was, is the CEO of programs, hires violent intruders who do a job not unlike health workers in a slum. Violent intruders cannot undo inequality, but they can identify, the, identify those most at risk of falling into violent behavior and step in before it happens. Rather, as health workers identify people likely to get sick and treat them before they infect others. This is an interesting kind of an alternative, not to defund police, but in some ways to provide others to help police and helping communities starve off violence. These violent intruders or interrupters is what they're called. Violence interrupters looking for, you know, neighborhoods or people or groups of people who may be prone to falling into violence and stepping in and helping them before they fall into violent activity. And so these, these interrupters help police when needed. And one of the most uh, effective tactics to contain violence is economic. And so, you know, again, the spiral is the, is the issue communities, these communities, these communities that struggle with violence, they need business investment. They need Walmart. They need um, they need Target. They need um, Kohl's. They need you know coffee shops. They need uh, grocery stores like Kroger. They need these business investments. Um, business investments leads to jobs. It also leads to tax revenue, um, and it just helps the community um, become more stable. It allows social services to come in alongside businesses and help people help neighborhoods bring stability. Cause when you have stability, you know, you're able to, um, a lot of things are Apple kids can get to school safely. Uh, parents aren't holding their kids back at home cause they're afraid their kids won't be safe. Uh, people get out, people go to community events. And when people go to community events, they feel a part of a greater community. They feel, um, that they're one, there's a unity that happens. And then there's, uh, when you're one, when you're unified, you care about your community and you want to get rid of the things that bring chaos. So it just leads to positive things and more violence leads to business de-investing which starts to decline lack of jobs, more young men on the streets, not working, not making money instead fighting for scraps and education and better access to jobs are so needed to starve off violence. So to conclude our cities and not just Memphis, Memphis is one of many are unhealthy spiritually Everything is spiritual. Uh, many are in a war of survival. Drugs and substance abuse are used to numb pain and suffering in this, in this 
constant war. Many see education as valueless when food and safety are scarce, which makes sense. Why invest? Why spend time studying? Why spend time going to school? Why, you know, get a, why getting a job or getting an internship? That doesn't matter when there's violence everywhere and there's a struggle for food, when there's a struggle for safety. Education is, is a luxury not a necessity. When the value system says street credibility is what makes the man, your heroes are models of violence and lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, which leads to more violence. And it never stops the spiral. Men don't invest in their education and their future. They look to bad examples as their model. One of the interesting things biblically is that Jesus came into the world to replace a value system of its day. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, were concerned about their street credibility. Now, they didn't beat people up or kill people to build up their street credibility, but they did do things to increase their value. And this was this was seen to be a a godly man, to be a respectable man in the society. You had to do these things. And Jesus talks about it in Matthew 23, one through seven. He says to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They have fringes that are long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called a rabbi by others. This was the value system. You did everything you could to be seen by others as someone with honor. And these are the things you did. These are the, these are the things that you, you put on your body, the things that you wore in your clothes, the things that you said to get street credibility. And Jesus says, whoa, don't do what they do. This does not lead to spiritual health. This leads to uh, a, a heart of hypocrisy. It leads to a heart of ungodliness, a heart of wickedness and, and evil towards God. And it's not good for the community. This is what's good. These are the, Jesus expressed this in Matthew 5, 2 through 11. What are, what are the true godly values? This is God, Christ's value system. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what our city needs. This is what it needs. It needs people who are peacemakers, people who are poor in spirit, people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
blessed are those who are merciful towards others. This is what our city needs. This value system is what our city needs. And they only come through faith in Jesus Christ. For our cities to be safe, people do need good education. I definitely agree that our schools need to be healthy. They need to be good so that kids get good educations. So they can learn and grow so that they can be um, um, positive contributors to our society. They need to be protected by the police. We need police. We need them in every community. We need them to protect citizens. We need them to be able to watch over us and make sure that no one does violence towards us. And if people do do violence towards one another, that they're held accountable by the law and that the public can see that if you do break the law, if you do violence towards others, you will go to jail. You will lose your freedom. So don't do this. And when you get people off the streets, then people don't, it's not led to retaliatory acts where they try to get back for the harm that was done to them or for the people that they love. We need, they need jobs. Every community needs jobs so that they can afford food, housing, and other basic needs. So they can be, there's something positive about working. God created us to work. God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden and told Adam to work. He told them to keep and guard the land. They were, we were created to work. And so when we're not working, when we're not using our minds and we're not using our hands to help others, to build others up, then we are not living as God created us to be. And that is dehumanizing. And so people do need to have access to jobs, but the cities need the church. It needs Christ's value system to penetrate every community in the city, poor communities, rich communities. The church needs to be in the city. Paul went and brought the gospels to major cities of the Roman empire and it affected the city. It changed the city. I want to just celebrate the North American Mission Board and their Sin City initiative in planting churches in the 30 biggest urban cities in North America, which include Baltimore, which include Philadelphia, which include St. Louis. Maybe, it, maybe we should talk about Memphis is not one of the cities. Maybe Memphis should be one of these cities. But as a, as a pastor here at Central Church, I do believe we're in the suburbs And those who are listening to this mostly go to this church. We are a church of the suburbs. We are not in the city of Memphis. We are in Kyerville. And, um, and while we reach our communities with the gospel, we are also, we need to bring the gospel to the city. We need to bring it to orange mounds. We need to bring the gospel to the inner cities of Memphis, to Frazier and the other, to South Haven and White Haven. We need to bring the gospel to these communities that are struggling they're spiraling. There's no investment. Not only there's no business investment, but there's no spiritual investment into these communities. And we have to think and strategize and pray. How do we bring the gospel, the value system of Christ that says, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst and righteousness, and they shall be satisfied. Our communities that are poor are not satisfied. There's communities that are and great poverty and people are not satisfied. That's why they increase. That's why they have 
uh, lotteries and one of the biggest places where their tickets are bought are in poor communities. That's why we say that gambling that the state uses is basically a tax on the poor. They're starving. They're not satisfied. They are discontent. And there is no, there's a community of no mercy, but vendettas and revenge. They're not a communities of peacemakers, but communities of getting even and retaliatory attacks and violence. And so our communities need the value system of Christ and they're not going to get it until they receive the blessings of Christ until they put their faith in Christ and they're not going to hear it and accept it until the church brings it to them. And another church is, we have fed, we have clothed, we have provided cans and all these different things, but we haven't really built roots. We haven't really planted. And I think that's the next initiative we have to really pray for, really consider and do. We think about the Moravians, they went into places that were not safe and they brought the gospel there. We have to start thinking and praying and 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 asking God's help to bring the gospel to our communities that are suffering in extreme ways. And so this is this is the um, this is a pastor's newspaper. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, being patient with me. Hopefully, get back on the routine. Hopefully, be back next week. We talk about Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, hope you've enjoyed this, and please continue to read the news with the Bible in your hand. I will see you next week.